Welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club podcast. There's no cardboard, it's not a club and we're not at the cinema. But we are going to talk about films so I won't be hauled in front of the podcast authorities quite yet. Today I'm joined by film lecturer, performance poet, cabaret host, zine author, podcaster and previous RetroTube guest, Ords Violet. And we're going to discuss Jacques Rivette's 1974 masterpiece of magical realism, the gorgeous Celine and Julie Go Boating. Yeah, marvellous to be back in the cardboard. Well, not back in the cardboard cinema club. I've never been to this particular venue before. It's a, it's a wonderful place. Yeah, it's a very different vibe to Retro Tube, and I'm delighted to be around. Well, it's lovely to have you. Thank you, because I'm, I'm, I'm very excited in full-on autism interrupting mode because I am going to be talking about my favourite <laughs> film ever. Spoilers for everyone there. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole idea of this podcast, is it's films we love, so there's no, like, no tension. Unlike Retrotube, there's that tension of, like, are they going to like it? <laughs> I am delighted. I am deeply delighted. If, if you didn't like it, I would be, I would feel, <laughs> frankly, tricked at this point, to be honest. <laughs> yes. I'd feel a little bit misled, yes. brought here under false pretenses Challenging to defend. You, so defend this awful film. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so oh. can you, uh, to kick it off, can you give us a brief overview of the story? No, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Right, okay. Celine and Julie, it's just around about three hours long, I believe, which is one of the things to get. And that, this is Jacques Rivette's second film, and it's his, it's not his longest film either. His longest movie is 13 hours long. And I say this just to get the idea of this is a big, complex story, which kind of rambles all over the place. That, that's something I'll come back to later on, because it's, it's kind of relevant. But, um... This is essentially the story of Celine and Julie and the day they go boating. <laughs> Simple as that, really. It's the journey of Celine, Celine and Julie going boating. Um, it's set in Paris in 1972, I think, off the top of my head, 71 or 72. Celine and Julie are strangers who randomly meet in a park, play a bizarre game of hide-and-seek with each other without ever exchanging a word. Um, park company meet again suddenly are moving into moving in together and living in intensely a very ill-defined relationship of some kind which are one of the sort of ambiguous aspects i really like and it explores their life as they explore each other's identities meddle with each other's lives slightly and then about an hour and 20 minutes or so unexpectedly start time traveling yes which is a bit of a shift and then we have a second film that tries to take over Phantom Ladies Over Paris, which is a very different story about dramatic and terrible things that took place long ago. Celine and Julie are not happy with this, shall we say, <laughs> and that's as much as I'll give away. It's a hard film to spoil because it, it's several movies kind of overlapping in a way, I think. It is, yeah. It's it's very, very dreamlike, which yeah. is one of the things I love about it. It's, it's very naturalistic, and because it's so low budget, so it's set in the same environment as Amelie, and it has a similar magical realist thing going as Amelie, but it's much lower budget, so there's none of the special effects, and there isn't that jeune golden glow that's done in the, the processing <laughs> 
that yeah. kind of green gold that he does so well. Uh, it's it, it's just pointing a camera at, at what's happening, so there's no real cinematography. I mean, luckily, there's gorgeous golden light all the time anyway, just the natural light is beautiful. Absolutely. So there's f- very little in the way of cinematography. There's no special effects almost no music at all very little this is this sort of the beautiful sort of opening and and um, closing kind of piano piece that is very haunting but very upbeat at the same time and in terms of how low budget it is and i may be getting ahead of myself if you look at some of the crowd scenes the sort of when Celine and julie move through paris the background is full of people pointing at them because there's a camera crew (laughs) filming these two beautifully dressed women (laughs) gazing directly into camera in a baffled fashion yeah it's it's completely shot without permission i think it's 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 pure guerrilla filmmaking on that on that basis um there are bits where you can see people laughing openly at things that have happened and some of the more dramatic sequences or or funny or outrageous sequences or at least in genuine shock from the crowds of onlookers, which I absolutely love. Yes, particularly the bit where Celine goes on a date with Julie's childhood boyfriend, <laughs> puts on a wig and pretends to be her. Oh, it's it's fantastic. They're both dressed very formally in white, and then they do this they do this absurd dance stroke flirtation which turns into an argument and in the background there's a, a crowd of children gathers just to <laughs> laugh at them <laughs> and these children are delighted that this ridiculous thing's happening and they're it's fully fantastic. in short which is brilliant yeah the effect just doesn't care in the slightest about any of that and it just it feels it gives it a very strange um it does get it, it answers that sort of dreamlike quality it does feel perhaps so to summarize it best it's like you're having a beautiful dream about paris on a summer's day in the 70s with your mythical best friend that you always fantasized about if yes, you see what i mean it's, you're imaginary that's kind best of what friend. it feels like and, and yeah there, there is i think possibly a more specific aspect to the uh, imaginary best friend that we'll touch on later oh yes yeah but yeah, and also it fe- the other thing I noted about it, it feels a bit like one of those a woozy. It's like they've they've had a little bit too much white wine. Yeah, and it's just it's a it's a woozy summer day, and it reminded me a bit of Inesbit and things like yeah. Enchanted Castle, where it's sort of there's a premise, but also a lot of it's just random stuff going on, and it's all a, seems a bit disconnected in a in a really delightful way, where it just things merge into each other and people just kind of drift along on these friendships they've made they're just going along with whatever's happening and it's summer and it's beautiful and they don't really have any proper cares in the world they don't and that's it's it's very much an aspirational film for me it's like i too could live apparently on on a librarian's salary in in a beautiful albeit very shabby sort of half squat yeah, loft flat in Paris in 1972 with, with a gorgeous, ill-defined person, with <laughs> ill-defined relationship person, and I, I too could just ring up work and say, "I'm not coming in ever again." Mm, effectively, I'm far away now. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's wonderful. The magical realist aspects, which I guess we'll talk more about later. They just sort of drift in. There's no huge setup. There's like, oh, a spooky thing is happening. They kind of go like. Oh, yeah, space and time have apparently gone really strange for us. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. We'll just carry on doing that and also living our regular lives simultaneously. And it's never clear wonderful. whether it's actually happening or they're just making up, making it up and that's causing it to happen. Yeah. In the same way that 
It's never clear whether they're strangers who've just met or actually they're long-term best friends who are just mucking about. In the script, they're strangers, but they play it as best mates. Yeah. Which has that interesting contradiction. So they have this this great chemistry from the outset. Yeah, absolutely. And... I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm very wary. I'm aware that most people listening may have seen the film or, or don't mind too much, but I really don't want to do spoilers, but the final, the very final sequence to jump way ahead kind of re- is, is I, I love that very final sequence, which is just kind of hilarious and beautiful and exactly what it needs to be. And it does kind of feed back into that. It's like, are they aware of this? Is this... Is this some kind of bizarre game they're playing in some way? Because there's a lot of also, there's the, the magical and occult themes run all the way through him. Yes. One of the opening sequ- well, the actual opening sequence is uh, Julie sitting in a park with a book on uh, occultism and magic, and she reads out what I think is um, something like an Enochian call or one of um, Crowley's uh, thymic rituals or something, and that kind of summons Celine into existence. She draws a magic circle with her toe. Yes, like the White Rabbit. Yeah, which it, there are very strong Alice in Wonderland vibes to the film as well. Overtly, they, they do mention Alice. It's not even under the surface. It's quite overt and specific, isn't it? Absolutely. Appropriately enough, I've just been joined, as is standard for anything being recorded at by my cat. <laughs> Hello. Um, which is very appropriate because this film is filled with cats. And I initially thought that was a deliberate mise-en-scene choice, that they'd sort of sourced all these cats. And apparently, no, they just no. cats just turned up wherever <laughs> they filmed. If you're all hearing a lot of rattling and crashing in the background, listeners, please note that my cat is very large and very irritated <laughs> that I'm recording a podcast right now. Pay attention to me. So I think the bit of the plot we actually haven't mentioned yet, which is the most structured element of it, is this idea that this melodrama, which is Phantom Ladies Over Paris, is taking place in a house in, I think, the suburbs of Paris, although the location is actually outside of Paris, but I, th- I think we're meant to take it as somewhere in the suburbs of Montmartre. Yeah, because they take a taxi there very quickly, and by, that's, yeah, that's the implication. So this melodrama is playing on a daily loop. Yeah. And they go inside the house one by one. They take it in turns to go inside the house, and when they go inside the house, they become a character in the melodrama. But like a dream, when they come out of the house, they have a vague kind of notion of what was going on, but get very frustrated when they're trying to actually remember specifics. But they come out with a boiled sweet in their mouth, which if they suck later on, that helps them to remember fragments, specific fragments, and they can see it. They can see it happening again outside the house. Absolutely. And they watch in the same way... They, they watch in a way that suggests a cinema audience or someone watching a film on TV. Yes, they face the they same direction. side by side. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and they stop every now and again for a cigarette. It's like, I need a, I need a smoke before we carry <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> it's like binge-watching something, binge-watching this weird alternative reality. Yes, and it turns into a whodunit. It does, and... Again, one one of my favourite aspects of the movie. I've, I could, I've got so many favourite aspects of this film. One of them is the fact that it becomes this strange melodrama, a whodunit. It is a horrific tragedy, a really dark, horrific, awful tragedy. And Celine and Julie just will not stand for this, and they rewrite the storyline so it becomes a farce and a comedy with an upbeat ending. They take over Phantom Ladies Out of Paris and make it into a happy film or a happy story. They force themselves to be a lucid element 
inside this looping yeah. melodrama. It is a lucid dream. Of course, it's very like a lucid dream because there are moments where they sort of, when they are controlling it, they occasionally slip out, of, slip into character again, and become someone from the dream, and then have to be broken out of it. In the same way that someone experiencing a lucid dream would see reality. I'll get to the first question on my regular questions list. Uh, okay. what, why is this film important to you? <laughs> That's oh, a big question. Here's a sound of a huge intake of breath. Um, I've ne- I'd never seen. I mean, I'm a. I've part of my work is obviously working with cinema, and I came to this film relatively late. I was playing in my thirties, which I'll talk about how I first came. But it wasn't my first awareness of it, which I'll explain shortly. But and the first time I saw it, it's so utterly unlike much of the cinema it is very thematically if not aesthetically very like a david lynch it's very like more holland drive yes but imagine a happy upbeat life-affirming version of more holland <laughs> drive is the best way to describe it almost and just the silliest and the fun of it and the joy and the fact that it's about taking a life which is not ideal and has got dark elements or unsatisfying elements or the mundane that it's about when you're in a position of having lost hope and lost dreams and then taking that and rewriting the script and transforming life through silliness because what they do is they transform into those lives through being really stupid at each other in a really clever way <laughs> and it's just awesome and it's magical and it's just the idea of Again, I don't go into too much detail at the nature of the tragedy, but it's kind of like it's taking an awful thing. I mean, no, we will not stand for this kind of horror. This story's going to be a good one. And taking charge of it, and that's it makes me happy. I've seen it dozens upon dozens of times. I never get sick of watching it at all. I could watch it daily, almost, if it wasn't, if it wasn't three hours long, obviously. And for a three, nearly three and a quarter hour film, it doesn't feel like it. No, not at all. It's not a trudge. I watch Hard to Be a God, which I think is the shorter film. I think that's two and three quarter hours. Yeah. Oh, I thought I was going. I thought I was going mad during that film. <laughs> <laughs> at about the two hour point in Hard to Be a God, I looked at my watch, and it was actually only forty five <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> oh goodness! Well, the film Rivette made before this is called Out One. It's thirteen and a half hours long. Crikey! I have a copy. <laughs> I have watched it once. <laughs> is it good? I've not seen it. I like it. It's it's incredible. It's glacially slow, and I think there was a vague idea it would be shown in installments on television, which it never was. It features a lot of the same cast as Celine and Julie, a lot of the similar kind of. It's more sort of. Um, it's slightly. It's, it, the magic elements are slightly displaced by a kind of conspiracy theory edge in this one, but it's conspiracy theory that goes nowhere and serves no purpose whatsoever. And apparently has no meaning, no <laughs> reason to it at all. And yeah, and it features, it does feature my absolute favourite actor of all time, Juliette Berto, who plays um, Celine and Celine and Julie in one of the lead roles. She plays quite a different part to Celine in some ways. Is Dominique Liburier in it as well? I don't think she is, but I may have lost track slightly. Um, I'm going to hideously mispronounce another character, the star's name now, as Bulla or Bulle Augier who plays um, one of the characters from Phantom Ladies Over Paris. And she's a major character in this one, again, playing a very different role. And she, she appears in a lot of Rivette films. Um, and interestingly, not again to get ahead, because I can't focus on linear things for a second, <laughs> which is probably why I love this film. Um, this, one of the films which Rivette made after Celine and Julie is called Duel, which is, again, Juliette Berto and Bologier. 
again, but it's another magic realist piece. And it's about a sort of film noir supernatural battle in Paris in the winter time this time. It's winter Paris in the 70s. That's a beautiful film as well. So you mentioned that you came to it, you were aware of it, or you had some kind of thoughts about it before you'd actually seen it. I, I am, of course, of a certain age, dear. And what it's, it's quite hard to explain. In, in, I'm going to sound like a real old, uh, absolutely old, old witch right now, but modern younger people can't understand in the modern era of streaming. But when I was growing up, obviously in the era of like television on from 4 pm to 11 pm, three channels. And the only films that were shown would have been sort of like a Western or a film noir, occasionally like a, a classic sci-fi or a 40s universal horror or something, if you were lucky. VHS, which was the aspirant technology at the time, either not around or hideously expensive and very, very, only like major Hollywood releases available. We didn't get to see things like this. There, was, there wasn't an art house cinema in Sheffield that I'm aware of, for example, where I grew up. So my awareness of huge numbers of the films that I've come to love over the years was from the the library where I'd go and get books out about cinema and read synopsis they would print like full synopsis for films because they knew no one had a chance of ever seeing them and it was in a book I got out of Central Sheffield Central Library in some point in the 80s which was called and it was called Cult Movies 2 as I recall and it was full of sort of um like trashy like sexploitation films and violent and gore and whatever the kind of classic grindhouse and then somehow stuck in this under sea is this film Celine and Julie go boating with a beautiful essay accompanying it, a complete <laughs> utterly unhelpful synopsis of the whole film which as you can imagine is quite a read and I just absolutely fell in love with the imagery the the the, the sort of shots of the cinematography that are in there this, I can't remember who wrote this book, but they did a beautiful description of this essay and their deep love of the film and the events it described. And clearly also, as is pretty open to anyone that knows, it also fell massively in love with Juliette Berto at the age of about 13 or 14 <laughs> from the photographs. And I, this film just haunts me. And I spent years trying to track it down, trying to find a copy on VHS. Would it ever show on television? If it was, I never saw it. And kind of finding other academic references at universities, sort of getting like papers out of the library to read more about it and try and find someone that had a copy. And it was just impossible to find until a DVD release sort of late 90s, sometime the 2000s, I think. There was a BFI, finally a BFI release that was used to get hold of. And I knew everything about the film back to front, but I'd never actually seen it physically. And I was, it was a real nerve-wracking experience. This could be, I was thinking, this could be awful. <laughs> I've loved this film without seeing it for decades. It's a weird thing. And then actually watching it, and it was better than I imagined. Yes. It was actually even better and more beautiful than I imagined it was going to be. And that's the strange... So, and since then, I've watched it sometimes on a monthly basis. Wow. Just because... I am completely entranced by this film and the, the whole... The, the work of everyone associated with it. I have made so many of my friends watch this film. <laughs> some have liked it, some have not. <laughs> but anyway. In proper Celine and Julie style, my experience with the film is nearly identical to yours. Really? I first got into film. I was not really huge. There were some films that I really liked. and I, yeah. One of my key films was 2001 and Space Odyssey, mainly because I saw it when I was about eight. And it, it popped my tiny brain and I was never quite the same again afterwards. Same. <laughs> But I was never that much into f film. They were always like 
slower and more boring versions of TV shows. It's like yeah, the first half hour where nothing happens. This is boring. So I was I was really into the Goon Show in the late eighties, early nineties. Of course. Uh, Doctor Who, things like that. But one day, out of Milton Keynes Library, I took out a book called Fantastic Cinema by Peter Nichols, which... I know this, yeah. And I have a, uh, I have a copy of it here, which is all about science fiction, fantasy and horror films. So by fantasy, he doesn't necessarily mean Lord of the Rings, high fantasy. It's, it's any kind of magical realism, anything that's fantastical, but not strictly science fiction or full-on horror. Yeah. And this, this is a book that made me fall in love with film and made me realise that actually there were lots of layers of meaning and expression to film. So that you, I'd always been into drawing and I was having a really bad time in A-level art and was really going off art as a thing that I wanted to do. And, and so I found a new thing that grabbed me as a, me- a means of self-expression. That I really want to make films, or at least write films. Oh, gosh, yeah. From these descriptions of all these films, there's one particular section called Fantasy Films Since 1968. So he had 1968 as being the key year when fantastical films went from being old cinema to modern cinema. So 2001, Rosemary's Baby, Planet of the Apes, I think Je Tem Je Tem is included in that. There's a few others as well. Yeah. And I would say all the descriptions in the book, the one that grabbed me the most is Celine and Julie Go Boating, his description of that. I was just absolutely fascinated by this film just based on the description and i had a very clear image in my mind of what it would be like and you know, what it would look like what the tone and pacing would be like and actually i wrote my first film script called lost in the garden a large part of that was inspired by what i thought celine and julie go boating goes boating would be oh my goodness that's amazing so very very oh, similar wow. The same as you, like my friend Peter, who will crop up on this show very soon, hopefully. He'd found it. He knew that I loved this film that I'd never seen. So he'd got it and he'd burnt a copy of it onto DVD for me and sent it to me. And this would have been mid-2000s, a long time, probably 12 or 13 years after I first got this book out of the library and had been slightly (laughs) obsessed by this film. So I had the same sort of trepidation is this film actually going to be any good? Like, I've built this up in my mind as being this amazing film. Is it going to be any good? And I was a bit unsure at first because it's so low budget. Yeah. I was like, oh, some of these shots aren't even in focus. (laughs) (laughs) What is this? That doesn't matter. (laughs) But yes, it turned out to be better than I imagined. Even though it was cheaper than I imagined it to be and, and didn't look or feel the same, I imagined it had more of a budget and more cinematography and that sort of thing. But just in terms of an actual film to watch, it was better than I imagined. Um, well, since I have the book in front of me, shall I read you what Peter Nichols wrote about Celine and Julie Go Boating? Yes, please. So this is under the heading Magic Houses. The notion that mysterious places may only open their doors to a special kind of person is also central to one of the most unusual fantasies of the century, Jacques Rivette's Celine and Julie Go Boating, 1974. The film opens in a little garden square in Paris where we see a cat stalking something invisible. For the next three hours and twelve minutes, we, the audience, are put into much the same position. The world is a strange place for the two girls, Celine and Julie, Juliette Berthaud and Dominique Laborier, by whom much of the film was improvised. They are hardly more than children, really. Which is a strange thing to say, since... That is a little bit, you know. <laughs> since like, Dom- Dominique Laborier is in her thirties in, in this, but... Yeah, patronising much, okay. <laughs> 
and the Paris they so spontaneously inhabit is full of the delightful surprises of childhood. Little worlds within worlds, small moments of magic. As when Julie, who has only just met Celine, drops in surprise the Bloody Mary she has already prepared when Celine requests her to make one. But telepathy between them becomes commonplace. After all, Celine is a magician in a rather cheap cabaret, and Julie is a librarian much involved in books of magic. The film begins by summoning up the ghost of all the other films it might have been. Most of the time it started like this. At the very end it looks as if it might be going to begin again, only the other way around. In another of Paris's secret gardens, Julie finds a strange old house with cats outside that she enters. Two hours later she leaves it, looking stunned and holding a candy. She cannot remember anything, but when she and Celine eat the candy, and in brackets it says, is it LSD? It's not LSD. It's not that kind of film. (laughs) It's not LSD. (laughs) It's not like that, no. (laughs) It's much more innocent than that. (laughs) They both remember. What we are then shown is like a film within a film. The house was full of ghosts. Something was happening there. Was there a plot? Who were these elegant claustrophobic spirits? As Rivette confesses, they deliberately look like the mildly catatonic characters from some brightly coloured late 1940s RKO women's picture and everything is in stylized deep focus. Oh my word. (laughs) It's not really, is it? I think he's writing from memory. Of... I think he is. I was, I was just thinking, oh gosh, I didn't notice the deep. Fo- I don't think it's there. <laughs> no, it's not. The cinematography isn't that sophisticated, isn't it? Yeah, I think he is. He's also has an imagined version of the film. Yeah, which is really ironic. Reporting. So I, I think he hasn't rewatched a lot of these films before writing the book, which is which is fine, I guess. Celine visits the house next and forgets what happens. They eat the candy again, and we have to make sense of more scenes from this film within the film. All of this goes on for a long time, and we witness some of the action in this mysterious house three or four times over. Finally, in exasperation, both girls raid the house together, pull silly faces at the ghosts, who ignore them as they continue their stately, repetitive melodrama. Then it reveals what happens in the end. I I won't. (laughs) No, it's not that it has to be said. If we were to reveal what happened at the end, we wouldn't be explaining it. It's not there's a great revelation at the end. (laughs) No, not really. It's just more layers of, like, incredibly beautiful (laughs) dreamlike imagery, really. But it's it's worthwhile experiencing the very end at least cold and just be it's which is a beautiful moment <laughs> julie then confesses that she knew the house well when she was a little girl that doesn't happen that doesn't Celine happen implies that she made the whole thing up no she is always fantasizing that, that, that's, what that's not in the film that's not in <laughs> i it. think this is why i imagined quite a different film because he's <laughs> describing quite a different film but we the audience saw it all too yeah, that, that isn't an accurate description of the film. It's an interesting sounding no, film, it's, but it's not an accurate description of the it's film. It's not Celine and Julie, whatever it is. No, there's never... We we learn early on in the film that Julie knew the house when she was a child because there's a photograph of it in her apartment, which she finds in the toy box, and then she returns to the house and realises it's the one that she used to live next door to. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the most dreamlike bits, is when she's trying to... When Celine is in the house having her her experience like, it's like being in a ghost train almost isn't it you kind of you yeah. go in and then you wait for them to come out the other end after the after the experience she's she's trying to break into the house through the windows so she climbs up a ladder onto the balcony and then she goes oh i can see my house from here it's next door <laughs> my <Yeah>. childhood <laughs> house is next door there it is 
Which is oh, very dreamlike. It is. It's 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 the sort of thing I I often, the kind of dream I often have. It's like oh yeah, mm. look, and, and there's there's the old lady I knew when I was little. In, yes, in this random which happens in the film as well. <laughs> yes, it's and certainly there's no references to Lean saying she's making the whole thing up. She tells a strange dreamlike story at one point that seems vaguely similar to what happens in the house, but it's not exactly the same. It's and it's. Given a lot of the principle of the film is about magic and creativity and art and making, t- telling stories and changing reality through that process, I think any sort of reductive reading of it is a bit, it's a bit of a waste of time, really, because it's just what happens is it just happens, and it's yeah. And there's a sense that they both might be making it up, and it's happening because they're making it up. But there's no, it's not a twist. It's like, oh yeah, I I make stuff up. Yeah, maybe it's that. <laughs> Um, but yes, he, he finishes by saying, But we, the audience, saw it all too. Our fantasy things we see because we want to see them. Towards the end, Celine and Julie go boating, and on the tranquil water they drift past another boat, on which are the three ghosts, the handsome man and the two women who hopelessly, helplessly love him, pale and impassive. The world of reality and the world of fantasy are, it seems, ships that pass not in the night, but in the middle of a gentle summer's day. Perhaps the title gives the game away. In an obscure French idiom, to go boating, aller en bateau, is to be caught up in a tall story, and so we have been. To some people it is the most magical film ever made. I belong in that group. So do I. To others it is an irritating fable about narcissistic young women who are intrinsically boring and silly. Ooh! (laughs) Steady on! (laughs) I say! Blimey. It's a bit harsh to someone who loves the film. Good grief! I know! Oh, my You're word. very boring and silly young women. Now go and behave. Oh, what nonsense. Because it is a film about misbehaving, isn't it? And misrule and breaking rules. I showed this film to a friend of mine whose favourite bit in it is a moment where Julie is working uh, behind the desk in the, this small library where she's, uh, she's employed at the start of the film. Read it, and she's reading tarot cards. And she looks across and a man sitting at a, a table in the library lights a cigarette. And Julie says... Sir, you may smoke discreetly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice moment. I, it's it's an odd one to pick as a favourite, considering all the things that do happen in it. But it's it's quite a fun little moment. She had many more favourites than that, but I think it's kind of... Um, it is a rule-breaking film. They're both locked into very rule-led lifestyles. Celine superficially seems to be living quite a free lifestyle as a sort of, like, slightly sleazy... Not She's, she's not sleazy, but the, the show she's in... There's nothing wrong with being sleazy anyway. But the show she's in is, like, kind of downbeat cabaret performance, and there are men who sort of heckle from the audience, and it's a bit... It's it's not a happy life, and she's locked into a set of rules there and being manipulated by a, a very sketchy kind of manager character, and... Julie is trapped in this dull job and she thinks she's going to end up marrying a child of sweetheart who she's not seen for like a decade or something, but he's going to propose to her anyway. And then they both just shatter each other's lives completely through through silliness. Yeah, they deliberately wreck each other's lives. Yeah. But in a good beautiful. way. They sort of liberate each other from, from these the, yeah, the cabaret is it's not even nighttime cabaret, it's cabaret, it's daytime cabaret, which seems even seedier. Yeah. So it's beautiful sunshine outside and outside and she's stuck in this horrible dark, smoky back street, tiny little theatre <laughs> doing this really ropey magic act. <laughs> really the worst magic tricks you've ever seen. It was like a kid's magic set. Yeah. The part where Julie pretends to be Celine and takes over her act. So so Celine wins an audition with some Middle Eastern, I 
guess they're oil tycoons. I think it's implied. There's a there's reference. There are references to the being agents for sort of yeah some kind of or a like, cruise like, ship or something, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, or something along those of... lines. It involves the Middle East. They talk about a number of Middle East locations. Yeah, this is her big break, and she's you know her manager talks her up as being this this big star in the waiting. Although I, I can't see it. No, but <laughs> not at all. Julie intercepts the the call and says, Celine can't make it, I'll come along and do the audition instead. <laughs> and her act, I think, is much better, it's much more interesting. It's like Andy Kaufman. It's fantastic, isn't it? I love that sequence, because Celine's stage performance is, um, it's spelt the Mandracor, which, of which I have a tattoo on my forearm of her stage show, <sighs> in fact, because I love the film so much. And and then, but when Julie takes over, she becomes the kamikaze, which is literally destroying the self-destructive performance, and it's beautiful, and insults the audience. It's wonderful. Watching this time, I really got Andy Kaufman vibes from it. So she starts yeah. off singing a song quite badly out of tune, <laughs> but then breaks down halfway through, sits on the stage, and just starts abusing the two men she's auditioning for, and tell, telling them they're Twilight pimps. Oh, yeah. And she like bears her soul and all this emotional this this emotional agony she's feeling having to audition and perform in front of these people and she pulls her gloves <laughs> off and throws them at them and it's this big dramatic moment. It's really good acting as well. It's like it's it, it's really mesmerising to watch. And then she flees the theatre, giggling mischievously. Yeah, she's <laughs> laughing hysterically because you're never uh, quite certain is she having some kind of breakdown. Is this a real emotional moment? It's not. She's just, no, she's just, just mocking the whole her thing. friend's career. Yeah, it's great. Je n'ai plus de cœur, même pour un mec. La vie m'a fait un peu trop de boniment. Quand je trouve un dur, je lui dis l'œil sec. Tu feras l'affaire. Un moment. Ma spontanéité. Ah 
suis très vive. Et puis, je, 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 je peux faire la femme cassou. Et puis, la femme poirier, tu sais, la femme poirier. Sur, sur l'auriculaire. Et puis, je peux faire la femme serpent. Puis encore... Puis encore plein de choses comme ça. Vous êtes là à m'enluquer vous êtes là à me reluquer sous toutes mes coutures. Derrière vos verres euh, glacés réfrigérants. Hein Je suis sûre que vous allez. que vous. que, que vous valez pas des, des nefles. Hein Bande de. Bande de macro Bande de macro cosmique Bande de macro cosmique et crépusculaire Amateur, amateur et pervers, hein Because at the same time, obviously, we alluded to before, uh, Celine dressed up as her and pretended to be her when meeting, finally, after all these years, meeting her childhood sweetheart. Gilou. And that's one of the funniest sequences in it. Oh, it's it's really funny. And then utterly, yeah, utterly destroying that relationship in the space <laughs> of about two minutes. Because he's sort of proposing all this really bawdy stuff. Like, they were children, but by the sounds of it, they were getting up to all sorts. And he's quite frank about this. Again, it's an improvised scene, and you can really tell it's an improvised scene. They are just generating every, like, bizarre comment they can. And sometimes, at one point, they're just stringing random words together almost in a way that sounds romantic <laughs> or sexual. It's really funny. And the, then it, it, it reaches... Well, I was going to say it climaxes. It reaches a... <laughs> yeah, well, it reaches a climax yeah. with him uh, dropping his trousers in the middle of this park in the daytime, in public. And, yeah, clearly they haven't got permission for this because the crowd has gathered to watch and are quite enjoying it. <laughs> he drops his trousers and says, finish me off. And she says, go and jerk off in the roses. <laughs> and then he turns... Ha- having gone through all this, he turns around and says, you're a monster of unspeakable vulgarity. <laughs> It's wonderful. He just it, there's there's no break whatsoever. You might become a monster with unspeakable vulgarity, and then walks away. <laughs> I, will, with I, will, I will never speak to you again. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. They are amazingly. Well, I, I like that. Um, they, they, the both the performances are noticeably different when Celine and Julie are being each other. The actual the actors' performances are visibly. They're almost playing different characters again. Like they're not just playing each other it's a really strange distinction that gets made as if it's generating two completely new characters almost yes and then again when they're in the melodrama because they play a character they play the the nurse called miss angel miss angel terre miss yes it took me years to realize it's mystery and fret mystery 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 angel (laughs) mystery angel yeah but she's this very cold character very cold and emotionless. Yeah. These two very people we're seeing as being, being very sim- silly and joyous and carefree, but they're now playing this very cold and distant and, and remote character. Oh, and she gets to yell out that... Suddenly, out of nowhere, suddenly shouts out, Blood ties must be renewed. Yes. <laughs> it's very American wealth in London. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really strange moment. The way this, this second film does take over and you forget all that sort of sunny Paris stuff after a while... Mm. But on the journey into that, some of the bizarre little sidesteps it takes, 
There is a sequence where they break into a library to steal books on the occult to create a spell to allow them to alter reality, which they do by dressing up in sort of leotards, tights, masks and putting roller skates on. <laughs> There's a beautiful still of um, the two of them with Jacques Rivette. And it's like standing there looking at the three of them looking absolutely manic. It's, be- it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned um, Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I think you can draw a line directly from Daisies, the 1966 Czech film, yeah. to Celine Julie to Mulholland Drive. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. There's another film that's taken in because there's another film which is explicitly based on Celine Julie, which I never got at all. Desperately Seeking Susan. Apparently so. I've never seen it. I have, yeah. It's, it doesn't contain the magic realism elements. It, it's, it's stripped down to the kind of idea of stage magician a stage magician and someone leaving a dull life kind of exchanging personas mm. in a very light-hearted way but I'd, I was always fascinated and I got really excited and watched Desperately Seeking Susan was like oh it's not as good <laughs> I like it I mean it's a good film but it's like it's not Celine and Julia though and it made me sad there's also um, actually, I don't I don't know if this is an, an earlier film or a later film I think it's a later film but Three Women the um Robert Altman one with oh, Sissy yes, Spacek and Shelley Duvall yeah. gradually. I mean, it, it's very, very different, but it has the similar idea of like these two women gradually exchanging personas as the film goes along. Yeah. But I think the main similarity to Mulholland Drive is this idea of a character coming home and finding an injured woman on the doorstep who has a memory loss and then some kind of dangerous mystery that's happened. Yeah. And that's why she's there, but she can't quite remember it. Yeah. And this, the, the, the sort of the very kind of, um, obviously Mulholland Drive sort of uses, um, the kind of rabbit hole imagery almost from Alice in Wonderland with the, the, the bot in the Mulholland Drive. It's via the, the box, which is kind of the mechanism that transports between different realities Whereas the the one-line elements are just constant throughout, Sleed and Julian, obviously the house and the candy are the mechanism that works there. I'm always interested. It's it's not a connection that seems to be discussed particularly in cinema, but it seems really, really blatant that it's a huge influence, I think. And I love Mulholland Drive. I think so. Yeah. I, it's, it, they're very, very, very similar films. They're just, they're, they're very similar stories, effectively. The narrative is very different. And the, the beats, it's... A beautiful example of how you can change the the tone of a film by simply focusing on different details, and obviously the, the kind of nighttime noirness of Mulholland Drive compared to this beautiful, gorgeous French eternal summer's day that Celine and Julie takes place in. It all seems to take place on Magic Hour, doesn't it? There's this golden sunshine, particularly in that um, market scene towards the beginning when they're running through the market, and it's just a wash with golden oh. late afternoon summer sunshine and it's gorgeous i've revisited paris and got some of those locations and one or two of them are still unchanged made me happy yeah i went to paris about 10 years ago and just came across the the square at the beginning by chance i think we were just a bit worn out by paris because it's quite full-on when you're in the tourist bit so we went off the beaten track in montmartre and just out into the quiet residential areas just just so we weren't around so many people it's just very full Montmartre like the, the central bit right at the middle is crammed with people but the moment you go off to the sides there's no one there so we were wandering around and then I think I was just thinking I wonder if I'll find any of the locations from Celine and Julie and then I sort of think oh, this is the square from the opening scene where she's sees the cat and is doing the magic spells and sees Celine go past so I 
I didn't have any... This was before I had a mobile phone, so I had no reference photographs. But I think I sat in the same on the same bench oh. that she sat. It, it, it looked very... Certainly back then it looked very, very similar. I don't know if it's changed much, but it seemed to be the same bench as that they had in 1974 and you would hope desperately that no one would move those because they're like they're, they're iconic to a very small number of people but they are iconic <laughs> yes. definitely and you're right the house is yeah isn't a suburb of paris just it's a, or a small town just outside us like it's quite a long way away gosh or gosh's i don't know I, yeah. my, my french pronunciation pronunciation isn't good enough but g-a-r-c-h-e-s so in the film it's at seven rue de nadir Oh, Pom, oh, yeah. which street of Nadir of Apples. Yeah, I instinctively want to wonder if that's significant in any way, and that it's probably just not at all. It's the actual name of the street or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, so it's a made-up name. Yeah. Uh, the, the the real place has got, I didn't write it down, but it has a much more prosaic name, but I think it's just... There's a lot of... There's lots of sort of linguistic non sequiturs in it, I think. They, they say things. Yeah. I think are just there for texture but don't necessarily mean a lot. They're kind of there for colour. Yes, and there are also jokes that get lost in translation as well. So they... Oh, how's it? It's um, in the English... Tra- the English subtitle, subtitles, it, some of the spells and some of the jokes they make revolve around the word clover, as they're including clover in magic rituals, and then saying you, you're too... I can't be exact. It's, just, it's a pun on the word clever and clover, basically. In the French version, it's... Um, parsley and i can't remember the french word for spirit but it's parsley and spirit in french are the same word so it's ah, interchanging okay. there referring to courage uh, sort of bravery and courageousness as in an essence of that so clover doesn't quite have the same impact <laughs> and i wonder how many other things that just don't translate at all are present there given how much they were improvising wildly on set they do seem like they're having an enormous an, a fantastic time don't they it just seems like enormous fun to have filmed they did especially the chase sequences at the start through paris just i almost you can all i'm not sure they're not actually genuinely laughing at some points i'm sure they must with, be did you know if they were already friends because the chemistry is so good between them and they're very easy with physical contact and i believe they were friends but they became closer during the course of the filmmaking i think but i believe they were friends and i was juliette better had worked with jacques Rivette before quite a few times and i mean barry i'm not so sure about but yeah um they were part of like a little circle kind of like post Jean-Luc Godard and, and things like Weekend and whatever, a little circle of filmmakers, kind of, again, kind of guerrilla filmmakers using those lightweight 60s cameras that you could take anywhere and you didn't need the massive lighting rig every time to make it work. The sort of, towards the latter part of French New Wave cinema, Rivette sort of comes out of that and is the, the circle that kind of surrounds him. And sometimes you get, there's people sort of make that mistake about calling Rivette an auteur, and I've got big problems with the auteur theory, especially in this case, because the people around Rivette in all his films were equal contributors and collaborators. He wasn't solely in charge. It was very much a sort of democratic process. It does seem to have been written by the two lead actresses and also Boulle Augier and Marie-France Pissier. I'm not sure how yeah. that's, that's how you pronounce it. So the two, the two ghostly women and the two central women were yeah. co co credited as uh, writers on it. Absolutely, and it's very performance based. The camera, there's not a lot of sort of things like that's why I was the line about deep focus photography in your book sort of threw me a bit because <laughs> yeah. there's not a lot of fancy camera work. There's not a lot of camera movement to be honest with you. No, other than when it's handheld. And there are references to how stagey it is at points because at one point in the haunted house. There's this moment where do you hear there's like three thumping noises 
echo through everything. It's tradition in French theatre to beat a mummer's pole three times at the start of a new act. So they're kind of deliberately making reference to the fact this is now a very stagey film. It's gone very sort of locked down and the camera's on one place and it's sort of very um, almost realist cinema in the kind of classical sense, which I mean, a camera locked down point at the actors. And one of the very, very few effects in it at all is uh, they dub over audience, theatre audience applause. Yes, of course. At one point, after, after they've done some interaction with the ghosts. Yes. <laughs> and then it's like the end of a scene and the audience applaud and they take a little bow. There's a fade to black, isn't there, around that point as well? It's like a, like the lights dipping down and then the beautiful scene where they're kind of backstage off <laughs> avoiding the ghosts and having a drink <laughs> out of smoke. And then yeah. they go, oh, it's your turn to go back on again. They're really tired. Like, okay. <laughs> and go back into character. You can tell it's the 70s. They, they all puff away like chimneys, don't they? It's a joke that's been levelled at me by students and colleagues alike, which is if, if I recommend you a film, it's going to be some French women in Paris smoking heavily and doing strange things or having odd <laughs> conversations in fabulous outfits. Like, yeah, it will be, generally speaking. <laughs> and why got a back catalogue? Yeah. The last film I did on this podcast was Shaun of the Dead, which I talked about uh, with Shannon when we were talking about that, that, that because of the callbacks, the amount of callbacks and the way Shaun of the Dead is written, that it, it plays out almost like a series of circles within circles. So there's lots of things that are referenced at the beginning that then crop up again at the end but the meaning has changed because of the context. So it's like these loops within loops. So that that doesn't happen in this, but this is a film that has loops within loops. So the melodrama in the house plays out daily. But as already mentioned by the uh, the section I took from the book, that at the very end of the film, it starts again. But this time it's Celine who's sitting on the bench reading a book and Julie who goes past like the white rabbit and... She follows her, so it's like the broader film also plays out in a bigger size loop. Mostly, it began like this. Yes, or the translation usually started like yeah. Usually, usually started like yeah. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and it's this sense that the whole thing, yeah, that it's this repeating pattern over and over again, and they kind of follow each other in loops through Paris as well. They're stuck in loops of repetitive behaviour and routine, which they break, and then they move out into these self-created ones. The echoes and the, again that sort of dreamlike repetition is just—it's really wonderful. There are kind of lots of patterns with it. There's a lot of tarot card imagery hidden away in there. There's a great bit where Julie's having a tarot cards read and. The reading is, your future is behind you. And then that is a deep focus bit of photography because we can see that, unbeknownst to her, Celine is sitting directly behind her, spying on her and painting weird red hands into children's books. <laughs> and that's another moment of synchronicity, isn't it? Where she's got this red marker and she's drawing around her, the outline of her hand in these books. And meanwhile, Julie is at the front desk and she's bored and she's making fingerprints with the red stamp pad. Yeah. So they're both making these red handprints. At the same time, and of course Which that become, yeah. yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> so yeah they become significant come really later on yeah yes another red... another circle forms the red hand on the shoulder when we were discussing this before you sort of mentioned other parts of the film that you could do without I genuinely don't think there are I don't really object to any of it I can I feel it's too short if anything I could live in this movie if, unless that's not becoming obvious that I'm deeply <laughs> obsessed now with this cinematic reality. It sort of goes beyond because technically, as we said, it's it's not always studying. Occasionally it slips out of focus. They're using very cheap kind of um, late 60s lightweight cameras, which made the French New Wave cinema movement able to happen because you didn't need a like 20-person lighting team or whatever 
to film anymore and he could just run through the Louvre with a camera like um, as happens in Band Apart. It's those technical faults. They just don't. They become magnificently irrelevant mm. because this is this is a film about creating something. It's about improvisation, and it's about. And that's another reason I love it. It's kind of, in some ways, for me thematically, it's about having a laugh with your best friends and creating something amazing without any resources, which is something that I love to do. It's my favourite. You know, the sort of the 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 spoken word events that I do, or that there's there's zines that I'm working on, or whatever. This this is this is the beauty of it it's within and it's within this urban environment you can just and rather than being trapped by it as many films many many examples of cinema would display they're playing with the urban environment like it's a playground and yes. no it's not always nice and sometimes it is sleazy and seedy but they mess with that and they take power and it's it's also a film very much about it's sort of empowerment of women within that community and the strength of like female relationships. There's so much to love about it. So, so much. I completely wandered off my point there. But anyway, the point <laughs> is it doesn't have to be technically beautiful. It's beautifully shot. And it looks wonderful. That's all that matters. It doesn't have that feel of actors turning up at six in the morning and bleary eyed drinking coffee from a polystyrene cup and wearing those big puffer jackets that <laughs> chilly actors always wear in the crew and everyone just be, being a bit grumpy and miserable for the first couple of hours it, it has more of that feel of like ringing up your mate on the phone and saying do you fancy shooting a bit more of the film are you free yeah come on we'll all go yeah. down the park and shoot a bit and just it being this fun not quite a hobby not it's not quite that it's not amateur in any way no but it, it's much more, let's just have some fun with this. Let's just see where it goes. And we've got this idea of these things happening. But it, Yeah, it, I suppose in some ways, uh, there's another David Lynch sort of parallel there. It kind of reminds me, like uh, it, it's like the opposite of Eraserhead, which is also very much a film that's made with a bunch of people who knew each other, a small group of actors and filmmakers sort of working on this this project on an incredibly low budget for a long period of time. Though I think this is quite a short shoot, thinking about it, by comparison to Eraserhead, seven years. Yeah, that went on for years, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I imagine this This was probably fairly easy. It's got to be over a summer shoot. It's just yes. going to be like the course of like one July or August in Paris, I guess. I would need to look into it more detail. I'm ashamed that I don't know that, actually. I couldn't find... I mean... I'm sure there's probably somebody's written about it, but I couldn't find much about the production of it, which possibly suggests it was quite easy and drama-free. And they, they just went ahead and did it. Yeah. And this is something I've discovered about the sort of the people around around Rivet. And I only use him as like a figurehead because it's it's a quite amorphous group that shifts and changes. Generally speaking, sort of Juliette Berto and Bologia are there a lot. But there's not a lot written about any of them. I think I have one or two books in English on the on the quite sort of short academic works about Rivet. The, the notes you get in kind of BFI Blu-ray copies, mm. things like that. A couple of websites. Juliette Berto, it's taken me till now to find almost anything about her at all. All I ever knew about her was that she was she'd worked with Godard. She um, was an incredibly talented filmmaker, artist, actor, writer, all this stuff. And that she died tragically young. She was 42 years old, about 1990, I think. And she was apparently really quite obsessively private. So there's very little biographical information. She's a really mysterious figure. I finally found a website a few weeks ago, which has just been published, what scant details are available, because nothing's known about many of these people they weren't sort of and i think it ties in what you're saying about not being the puffer jacket six a.m in the morning crowd <laughs> there were people who weren't doing this for, for fame as such it very much is an artistic expression at the same time which 
is a weird thing to say because that can sort of be used as an insult nowadays. Oh, they're just about the art. But no, this this is genuinely creating something for the love of it. And it comes across in so many of their films. Dominique Liburier seems to have been a decent jobbing actor who had lots of jobs on things. Yeah. She seems to have, the four of the main women in it, she seems to have had the most okay life in that she, I mean, as for the little we know about any of them, but she's the one who's still around and still active now in her nearly she's nearly 80 i wish i don't of course yeah she's she's one of the very few that survived <laughs> but yeah um oh bologna I, I i think bologna is still alive i'm just gonna really unprofessionally look at this now not only is bologna still still alive she's still married to the actor who plays the the other ghost the, the handsome man whose name i forget barbe barbe schroeder yes presume, top yeah. top hollywood film director barbe schroeder yeah he's de- yeah, he directed Barfly, <laughs> things like that. Yes, and a single white female, and he's yeah, of course he's single white female, isn't he? He's the president of France in Mars Attacks as well, <laughs> <laughs> which is deeply strange. Like, yeah, he directed Mad Men as well. But I think they've been married for quite a long time before before this. So they, they I think they've been married since maybe the sixties or fifties, and they're still so. still married to this day. It's kind of a weird impact this film has because it's one of the it's one of the first bits in history. Looking at French cinema specifically from the nineteen seventies, it's one of the first points in history where fashion has gone through so many circles that eventually, by the time you, if you don't look at the cars and the technology, it could actually be set any point. And the the shift and the, the, when you look at how old, how the aging process has affected <laughs> some of those stars, and that it's harder to visualise them growing older than realise actually, yeah, this film's older than I am, just by a year or so. It came out in 1974, but I don't know if that's summer 1974 or if they filmed it like in 1973 or something like that. Oh, it might be exactly. I would love it if if Celine and Julie is exactly as old as me. I'll be very very <laughs> excited indeed. God, I, I, please, 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 for the sake. <laughs> 1974, so, um, this is, yes, this is me desperately scrolling through to try and find production. Doesn't actually specify, I would like to, I would like it to be made in the summer of 73 when I was, you know, on my way. That would be a beautiful thing. I would like that a lot. Selena and Julie brought me into the world, I like to think. It also has silent film style intertitles, but they're always the same thing. (laughs) I'd love that. It's always the same phrase, but the next morning. But the next morning, and uh, yeah, and again, the set, this constantly ongoing, the, the narrative is just constantly churning on. It's like but the next. It reminds me of when someone's making up a story, and then, and then, and then, which I suppose is kind of maybe possibly the reasoning behind it. But it's quite funny as well because it says "but the next morning," even when it's not a but. <laughs> Yeah. So they'll be they'll be planning to do something in the evening, and then it'll say, "But the next morning," <laughs> and then they do it. Yet they're still doing the thing they were planning to do in the evening. <laughs> yeah, it's and time is very time and events are very very odd in the film. They, it just seems to be a string. It's just a string of identical days, really. And I love that. I've shown this film to quite a lot of people over the years, as I said earlier on, and. Like I said, some people have really loved it, especially sort of the recent last couple of years. Some people have watched this film and absolutely adored it as much as I do. Some people have hated it so much or not been able to get on with it beyond about 35 minutes and, and said, like, can we come back to this another time? And never did. Which I can sort of see why, really. Yeah. You very much have to be in the right headspace for it, I think. You have to be in the right frame of mind to make this happen. 
which again is kind of appropriate for the film because it's about it's a almost a film that requires an effort of will and once you make it you become part of you almost feel like becoming part of the story i'm loving how both you and i and and the guy who wrote the book earlier have all got like i found a fantasy version of this film that we all created which is exactly what happens in the film and i think also i i have a high tolerance for it not high tolerance because i love it but you know i i just like silly women (laughs) like they're having fun because i i love the idea of a of experimental film or new wave film but i have a really low tolerance for you know characters who are ciphers or yeah you know those sort of emotional vacuums or you know everything's very serious and people aren't very expressive and it's all about just these blank faces absolutely i have I, i get bored very quickly with that there's not a lot going on there. I, I definitely the example that are of that so like in in Godard's Alphaville where um, Anna Karina plays that very character, but I think it's kind of like a pastiche of that to it. So it would already become a bit of a a bit of a cliche in new wave and experimental cinema by sort of like sixty six or something. And yeah, and this is one of the first films. And it just celebrates. There are very few. There are no men in this film that aren't a bit. That aren't ciphers. The the women get the full definition. Of this film. The men are generally some form of mildly despicable in some way. Yes. Other than the pianist, who's barely oh, in it anyway. Yeah. He seems fairly sweet, but that's very true. Actually, he's not yes. really a main. He's not sort of. He's just an incidental guy. But yeah, generally, Gregoire, the Gregoire. childhood boyfriend, is sleazy and pompous. <laughs> And um, Babe Schroeder's, Schroeder's character, the ghost, who is just awful, generally. <laughs> Apparently uh, a handsome man. I mean, I, I'm i struggling to see it myself, but... I guess, I suppose. He's, he, he just has his big, dramatic, mournful moments. and He has a very unflattering hairstyle, I think. He, he really does, which becomes more unflattering as the film goes on without spoilers. <laughs> and, and the scene, you know the scene I'm referring to, and I won't spoil that, but it's one of the funniest bits in the whole film. It involves Celine and Julie realising exactly how much they can distort reality in the haunted house world. And I, I love that bit. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I think we can, we can, we can, we can, we can mention expl- specifics. I think they basically, because- yeah, they realise that they've come so far into current that no one can actually perceive them altering reality anymore. So they just start in the moments where, in the original version of the story, the ghosts are having big, beautiful, melodramatic dances, and it was very mournful and like poignant. And now. Th- they change. They still dance the same way, but Celine and Julie put like a tango on or something, and they start putting the table decorations on the ghosts' heads, just like crowns, and balancing things on them while they dance. Which must have been really hard to, to act with a straight face. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Barbara Schroeder's characters kind of got like a. It's like a big. Is it got like cards like a fruit bowl or something? Yeah, it's made of large playing cards. This kind of almost yeah. like. Um, the, the, the opening titles of <laughs> Tales of the Unexpected with a revolving, oh, yeah, it revolving like playing that, cards. It? It's that kind of thing, but resting yeah. on his head. Yeah, it's really funny. But he's completely oblivious to it. And you've, it's acted so well that it, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, the, the actors would be aware of each other, but you kind of take it for granted that they're not because it's acted <laughs> yeah. so well. Like, Barbeck Schroeder is just like, he's completely unaware of the other two. But no, he's he's <laughs> he's in the room with them. A film I started watching recently, uh, my second attempt, is uh, Last Year in Mariambad, which is early 60s New Wave. And that's a film where there's no people in it. It's just these 
figures in dinner suits saying things. Yeah. Uh, and I love the idea of it, and it looks amazing, but I have a very low tolerance for films that don't have people in. Oh, I had exactly the same experience. It was what I'd... I'd I, again, I'd heard about it in the same context for years and seen these beautiful still images, sort of the characters casting long shadows on this in this beautiful lawn sort of area and this immaculately presented movie and these, these hints of this strange ghostly and threatening story then you watch it and you're like okay there's no one to attach to in this film at all this is just like no it's a bit tortuous and it looks beautiful it and looks like beautiful you said the idea is great but it works brilliantly in the blur music video to <laughs> to the end yeah, I think is the one, it's isn't the it? End, yeah, yeah. That's its that's its perfect home. But as an actual film, yeah, I couldn't make make beyond twenty minutes. I was like, I need I need a character. I need people that I can latch onto, and this certainly has them. Yeah, and I think that's also a thing in this that the contrast between Celine and Julie and this very formal melodrama with the very uh, formalized gender roles, and it's that kind of airport fiction. Yeah style thing where these people who are actually quite young they're all the same age i think roughly yeah because they're all in out one together i think i forget her marie france is i think i looked her up and she's 23 yeah and boulogier is 35 so there's a bit of a gap between them oh right i didn't realize there's that much difference yeah they look they look the same age but they're behaving like very old people and they they have such a formal way of speaking and interacting with each other, and it's very straight-jacketed in a way, in that very old-fashioned way. And you know, the, the the two women behave in this certain way, and the man is behaving this very formal way as well. And so you contrast this with Celine and Julie, who are just do anything they please. Absolutely, they don't care. They'll do whatever comes to mind. They have magic dinosaur eye rings. They do. And, yes. and a little chant they do. Of, like, it's kind of a bit wonder, like Wonder Twins in the 70s. Just like they chant, <laughs> they, they sort of like mash their rings together and go like, I have links, we've got it made. And it, yeah, I love it. You do want to be friends with them, although they might be a bit exhausting in real life. I suspect they are. There are a few of moments that I like where they sort of get tired of each other and they kind of snap at each other. It's very realistic and very human as well. It just, just undercuts the sort of like what might otherwise be a bit of like a sort of very sugary sweet. And also, of course, there's this long sequence where Celine spells the st- spells out this story about this woman that she started a relationship with and it's this it's this fantasy of this american millionaire who loves her he's completely loves her yeah film star i think but she never specifies who she just says she's world famous but doesn't actually say who it is yeah and none of her she's telling this to her colleagues at the theater so it's all the other acts and none of them believe her. Not at all. Until, of course, then like later on, Julie arrives and kind of suggests that she is like this mysterious American. Yeah. Just to like completely throw the world just a beautiful moment. Yeah, even though she's clearly French and not a millionaire. She's just <laughs> some woman with a big mop of ginger hair. Yeah, I wonder how much the colour coding, because obviously Celine, the name associated with the moon, and Celine is the magician and she has like... The, the dark hair and then we have the sort of sun imagery around Julie and I only mention it because that's the theme that the film Duel a subsequent revet film is based around the sun versus the moon in that case it's a battle between the sun and the moon symbolised in Paris and I think also Julie is the is the is the sunnier personality of the yeah. two, I think. And yeah, Celine totally. is the spikier one. Also, watching it this time around, it occurred to me that these are two people who don't really have any other friends 
other than each other. Because uh, Julie's, I think, is a bit of a loner. And Celine seems to be one of those people that, like, no one in her friendship group actually likes her. <laughs> they find her a bit annoying. Yeah, they clearly do. And they're sort of sick of her stories. Yeah, and she she's quite aggressive towards them. And they, they get yeah. quite aggressive towards her. <laughs> they don't like her, and she doesn't like them. Yeah, they, they, they're kind of presented, and the, the scene is shot as though they're best friends, and the, the way they speak to each other is really vile. <laughs> it's really horrible. And the, they don't they don't seem to be aware of how horrible it is. It's a, yeah. It is quite... It does have its dark moments, as well as the obvious ones later on, but it has these dark moments early on in relationships that clearly aren't aren't all that they should be or could be. I find that really interesting. They do seem to be like the only two people who can tolerate each other. And then barely sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> they can barely tolerate each other. But they're always brought back together again. And there are a couple of moments it looks as if they're about to part company. And then it's, but the next day, the next morning, and then things are back to normal again. One of the notes I wrote is Celine is a chronic fidget. She's always just picking stuff up and looking at it and putting it down. She just can't stop fidgeting and doing things and kind of breaking things yes. messing with stuff yeah she's constantly and just sort of picking something up looking to con- contemptuously throwing it away again because she rummages through julie's apartment randomly <laughs> searching the place yeah. which is obviously but also julie rummages through her luggage to celine's luggage and rather gleefully writes down a name and address in a little book at one point <laughs> it was only this time around as well that i realized that celine has a surname Sondras. Yes, it's on the um, the registration card of the hotel, isn't it? Yeah. Celine Sondras, C-E-N-D-R-A-R-S, and her occupation, magician. Magician, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, I, I want to be able to fill out a card that says that one day. But there's also the issue, you, we, you mentioned the other day, um, the this sort of old lady character that Julie meets when she goes back to her childhood home, and the, the name... Um, Poopy! Poopy, yeah, Poopy. which translates as doll, which after a long scene of them playing with dolls, he's kind of like... Yeah, so it occurred to me, because we don't, we don't know who this old woman is. She, sa- she sees her and she says, my Poopy! And, like, she hasn't seen this woman in years. Like, is she a childhood friend? But if she's Dolly, is it one of her dolls? But she's just grown up and become an old lady. It's possibility in this film. Is Absolutely anything is possible. Any interpretation is valid, as we know. I, yes. I don't know. I, I just like making stories up myself around it. I, I briefly wondered, is this like an imaginary friend that looked... Because she talks about being, not being looked after by her mother very much. And it's cause it, yeah, this... she said, I never liked your mother. Yeah. Which I don't think a family friend would say, but possibly a doll or a m- imaginary friend would. Yeah, I wondered that. That that sort of crossed my mind. This, and there's, there's, there's some kind of... It's like we're seeing... A, there's a story that's missing, isn't there? And it's to do with Julie's childhood, but we never get the slightest hint what it is. There's this huge missing... Like, this massive absence within the, in the text as if something weird or magical or traumatic or emotional happened. But we just don't, get, we just don't know what it is. Did her mother go off? So, so her mother's gone off and gone travelling. She did. But she, that's about she all She went we... off with men. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's my current headcanon, is that Poopy is her doll, but she's just become a person and grown up and is now an old lady who serves tea in giant Alice in Wonderland mugs. Oh, those They're bowls, drinking out of these huge there. mugs. They are fabulous. That, the, the high tea they have, it, I, I want to eat and drink all that. It's amazing. It is a very Alice in Wonderland scene. You're right again, of course. Seated outside. A lot of Rivette's films are shot outside because it's cheaper and easier. <laughs> yes. But you know, 
<laughs> one of his later films, uh, The Pont de Nord, has got um, Bologna again. Plays a woman with chronic um, claustrophobia who can't bear to be inside, even like even on a train or a great passing through a shop. Which is basically just they could film the whole thing on the streets <laughs> and not to worry about interiors. This is a. I, I don't know if this is a Jacques Rivette thing because this is. I, I'm ashamed to admit the only one of his films I've seen. I, rather than watching this one over and over again, I should actually watch another one of his films. <laughs> um, a lot of them are really good. <laughs> but this is full of characters in the ghost story who just have these extreme phobias. So Sophie, yeah. who's the the younger, dark haired one, uh, collapses at the sight of flowers. The mere <laughs> mention of flowers, she falls to the floor. It took me ages to work out what was going on the first time I watched it. I was like, what? Because it never explains this. She just goes like, ah, and crashes down. And you realise it whenever she sees flowers or hears the word. Yes. But also Miss Angèle, who's the nurse played by Selina Julie when they go in the house, there's a bit where she says that she went to the seaside, but the sight of the fish made her really sick. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. <laughs> That's beautiful. So yeah. his films are full of these women with terrible phobias, these debilitating <laughs> extreme phobias. Bologna's character, whose name completely escapes me. Oh, um, no, it's gone as well. It'll come back. Yeah. But she has this kind of like, she's the sort of ultra, ultra manifestation of the kind of like wispy upper middle class, ultra privileged, rich. <laughs> well, she's very fragile. A, she has this beautiful she's fragile. She's like, cut glass. She's, she's had this terrible life because her family paid for her to travel the world instead of leaving her at home. <laughs> instead of letting her read. <laughs> they gave her a huge amount of money and asked her to travel around the world for an experience. She's like, she finds it was the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody <laughs> and leans dramatically against, against Miss Angel. It's, it's, it's so overplayed. It's really, really funny. <laughs> you forget, of course, as well. Out of all all the cast and the the crew on this film, were very much from a very political um, sort of like Paris in the sixties revolutionary standpoint as well. So those ideas. Um, the, the earlier film out one is very explicitly about the aftermath of the Paris riots and things like that. And so I think there's a lot of like very snarky class comment tucked away into the melodrama scenes. It's very much saying, "Oh no, you poor delicate flower! You had to travel the world with millions of millions of francs. How awful!" Yeah, so it's it's apparently based on a couple of Henry James stories: the, rom- yes. the romance of certain old clothes and also yes. the other house. So it's like a combination of these two stories. Yes, I've never read the other house. I have read the romance of certain old clothes. Which is great. It's about a murderous ghost. Oh wow! Associated with dresses, which is which does indeed. It's the moment where, for the want of sounding less rubbish, the dark-haired ghost <laughs> rummages Sophie. through. Sophie, yes, yes, she rummages through and she puts on. Oh no! Oh my goodness, my brain has just gone. But yeah, anyway, one of them puts on one of the dresses from the long dead mother of the small child in the house, and that's. That's the reference there. In the original story, the, the ghost returns and murders her for this transgression. In this one, that's not happened. Camille. Camille, that's yes, Boulogier. of course. I've only seen it 40 or 50 odd times. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, I, don't store, I don't store names very well. Before I watched this, I watched the Doctor Who Adventure, The Green Death. And so I wrote down the note, all the men in this look like <laughs> Professor Jones. <laughs> all the men they in the do. background. It's a lots of Professor Joneses walking about. They really do. It's... It's it's as seventies as it gets. It has to be said. Everyone's got that big, odd seventies haircut. Everyone smokes a lot. I also noted that the house looks like Bagpuss. It has oh my goodness pink and white stripes oh, oh or orange and white stripes. 
you you do realise Celine and Julie is effectively bagpuss. Now you mm. come to say that, as you know, they, they go to the house and wake up, and stories get woven around items that are then bad things are repaired. Oh my goodness, it's bagpuss. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all happening not... inside bagpuss. Oh my goodness, this. <laughs> Yeah, but perhaps it's the house next door to Emily's shop. Oh, yeah. That is in France, because why not, you know? I can't quite tell from the colour grading of the film whether they're pink and white stripes or orange and white stripes. Presumably orange and white stripes, because it's red brick, maybe. But... They're pink and white now, I think. I've seen photographs... I've, I've looked, I looked on Google Street View to find a little cheeky glimpse of the house that is nowadays... And they're pink and white now, what they were then. Because, as you say, the uh, the colour gradient's all completely off. And the house was another location where loads of cats turned up as well, wasn't it? Yeah, they're all milling around the front door. Yeah, I worry about those cats a lot. Because there's one that's kitten that's desperate trying to get to its mum. And I get really worried every time I watch it. It's like, it's 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. You know. I'm guessing cheap film stock. The seconds, the offcuts. A lot of filmmakers then you see the offcuts from this main studios. And possibly sixteen mil rather than thirty-five. Is it sixteen millimeter blown up? It might be. I can't that tell. That would explain a lot be, of the yeah. look of it. Yeah. I honestly don't know if it is. It looks like it wouldn't surprise me if it was. It has that sort of public information film quality every now and again. <laughs> it so. does, or like the Monty Python film inserts. <laughs> yeah. It's got that strain, which lends for to to my eyes, which lends to that dreamlike quality because it does. It's it sort of puts me in mind of all those odd things that you saw when you were a kid, those little films and snippets that were f- shot on that same kind of footage with natural lighting. Yeah, it works much better than if it was lush and lit by a cinematographer. I think I can't. I'm, I'm really stuck on these descriptions. This film, Technicolor, deep focus photography. <laughs> Celine admits she's been making the whole thing. What was he it's watching? Weird, isn't it? Yeah, he must have seen it like ten years before and so. just roughly put this together from what he could remember. He's got a deadline for writing the book, so he can't rewatch all the films. And I suppose about this is written in 1984, so he'd ha- actually have limited opportunities to rewatch the films. He would have got maybe like a BFI re-showing on the off chance that happened. Or in France, maybe it was. It was obviously it was huge success in France. As I recall, was it? I think it was quite successful in France, but not, certainly not outside of France. And Rivette was quite popular by the certainly was a re- really respected figure by the eighties. And Juliette Berto was a very reflected director by the eighties, by eighty four as well. So another similarity to other things that the sh- the scene in the shower where they're talking to each other about Celine's adventures in the jungle really reminded me of Captain Spaulding in Animal Crackers <laughs> and his dist- stream of puns. We left New York drunk and early on the morning of February second. After fifteen days on the water and six on the boat. We finally arrived on the shores of Africa. I guess they're French puns, they don't quite translate, but there's this weird story of her adventures in the jungle with the pun on being traumatised, but tomato, which is... Yeah, traumatised and tomato. And then we cut into the Bloody Mary joke as well. It's all wordplay, and I wonder how much of it is... is I wonder how much of it is improvised, like, there and then. I almost... Very often you can hear... When the characters are talking to each other and one's off, one's off screen, you can hear them. It's not like it's being dubbed in afterwards. That character is actually literally standing off screen, saying the lines back across the gap, which is quite an unusual technique. And I wonder, the bathroom set especially looks like it's just been built by slapping some paint on a wall to make it to make that possible, so they can just generate that interplay between each other. 
That is a fabulous flat, isn't it? The view it is. and oh, it's it's beautiful. And you know as well that that will probably have been cheap at the time as well. And it breaks my heart just a little bit <laughs> to look at it and go, I want to live in Paris with Celine and Julie. It's a film set in Paris, and you never once see the Eiffel Tower. You do not. That is very true. You barely glimpse. You glimpse once the Sacré Cœur. Yeah. In the background, but it's it's not a landmark film. It, it's all in the suburbs. It's mainly about the, the funicular railway at the start, to be honest yes. with you. Yeah. You can't race that thing up the hill. I have tried it to recreate that, so you <laughs> cannot do it. <laughs> Especially in high heels. No, I don't know. That's It's just quite a good effort to get up there. But again, that's that's pure guerrilla filmmaking, because they've just literally slapped the camera in the car, in the cab, <laughs> and just like sat and watched as it goes past. One of my favourite scenes is when Julie's gone to the cabaret to watch Celine's act. And while she's sitting in the audience, she's having flashbacks to... She's remembering parts of her adventure in the house. So she's in this darkened room, but it's just the images, so the audio continues from the cabaret. But we're just having these flashes of her memories and just her face as she realises that she's, she's starting to remember parts of these this adventure and it's some kind of murder mystery. I really like that. It's very evocative. It very much is, yeah. And it's it's very disorientating as well because the first time it happens, you you almost don't register. You just register, what, what? And then because you're so distracted by the cabaret performance as well, and then as you slowly realise she's remembering whatever it was that took place and you're getting these ghostly figures the house is quite bright by comparison to the dark club isn't it yes so you get the nice contrast yeah just in the same way that the the phantom ladies over paris intertitle is um black and white as opposed to Celine and julian which is white and black and they kind of flash between each other they, the french new wave liked intertitles because i i watched um weekend a couple of times which is full of full of them and of course, anyone who's familiar with Weekend, Juliette Berto is the dying hippie who sings a little song, <laughs> which is one of the more memorable bits. Yeah, she plays that kind of part a lot. She was often playing revolutionaries or strange murderers. Yeah, she has that kind of energy about her, doesn't she? Yeah, she plays a vampire in a short film called Juliette in Paris, which is I, I can't I, I can't recommend. It can, warning, trigger warning contains like suggested animal cruelty at one point. Oh so yeah, weekend has actual animal cruelty. So yeah, weekend has full on animal cruelty. It's nothing compared to that. But um, yeah, she, she and she had this did her this strange. She had a pretty meteoric career in some ways. She's in a lot of kind of art house things. Then she becomes quite a mainstream figure, but she becomes an incredibly successful director. In France, she becomes a successful director. She makes a lot of films that are regarded as actual classics by, by like French academics, which are completely impossible to get hold of outside or dubbed copies. There's a film called um, Snow, Neige, which I'm, I'm hopefully, someone can prove me wrong and get me a copy of this. I've seen the trailers for it. I've seen bits about it. I've seen little documentary snippets on it. It looks amazing. It's a really fascinating story about working class life in um I can't remember where it's so much part of France it's set in and sort of like minority groups and oppression in society. It's like a quite fun and intense film at the same time. Can't get that anywhere. And it just it annoys me because she was obviously like a really talented figure and a, a woman working in French cinema at that level throughout the 70s and the 80s. And she's just been completely forgotten. That's my little rant there. I intend to write, reinvent the cult of Juliette Berto again. Yes, I think so. She she crammed a lot in in forty two years. Absolutely. I, I I get the impression she was a bit of a starlet in the sixties. Art house, art house. Yeah, she was yeah. a new, new wave starlet, and then yeah, uh, Dominique Liburio was more the character actor of the two. Yeah, not that Juliette Berto 
isn't a character actor, but you know she's she's possibly seen as the more glamorous and more mainstream. She has, definitely has a, quite an edgy energy to her in this. You you could imagine that if she got really drunk, that Celine could be a bit stabby. I yeah, definitely. She, you you'd not feel entirely comfortable. No. I think Julie is a sweetheart, but I think yes. uh, Celine <laughs> might be a bit full on. They get the scene, the old fight scene towards them, and they grab each other's ears, <laughs> twist each other, <laughs> and then realise they've got caught by the ghost while they do <laughs> this horrible look across their faces because they're fighting. Yeah, I'd, I'd be slightly scared of Celine, to be honest with you. Moon energy. Celine is probably a nightmare to work with. Her act doesn't. Her act doesn't get any applause. Oh, why? Why would Celine's act get any applause? For the benefit Politeness. of those who haven't. Yeah. Out of politeness, maybe it's for the benefit of those of you who haven't watched it. Her act consists at one point of doing that trick where you pull some handkerchiefs to the middle of a record and then pull a record through it, like a cardboard record. It's like it passed through. Her opening gag is to pull a bunch of those magic flowers out of her sleeve. So that's the level we're at. <laughs> is there some flash powder or something involved? It's every Paul Daniels magic <laughs> magic set yes. trick from about 1981 that she just does. She's very self-aware and she says they just come to look at my arse or whatever it is. She says words to that effect at one point. The club is just so grim and the act is so grim, which is, as we said, is why when the kamikaze destroys it it's a beautiful thing you, you get the sense that even though they wreck each other's they don't wreck each other's lives but they you know they they wreck each other's opportunities they're not losing out on anything because gregoire is horrible and celine's job is horrible yeah they're not losing anything at all they're getting rid of things that they should have gotten rid of themselves a long time ago they're exorcising their own ghosts in a way and then once they've done that then they're free to go and get rid of some actual ghosts it's a little journey through wonderland basically Hence why the cats became so important, even though they were just an improvised feature on set. They began to focus on the cats as a distinct Alice in Wonderland reference, which is why we see that cat so much at the start and the end of the film. I once heard a beautiful interpretation of Celine and Julie, which said, is it possible that the whole film is just that cat looking at humans and making a story about them? (laughs) (laughs) I wondered if it was just the story, the unlikely story of a lesbian couple adopting their daughter. Possibly, yeah. Entirely possibly. This is what they tell people. So how did you adopt your daughter? Well, (laughs) let me tell you. Yeah, it's that that works. That completely works as well. This the the kind of life of pie approach almost, where the yes. fantasy re- displays reality. But is it? And yeah, because that we we've said now anyway. That is literally how the film ends with them becoming this family unit. Yeah, and going boating. Spoilers. We touched on before that. You're never quite sure, whereas Myrtle Holland Drive, they make it explicit in every sense of the word. You're never quite sure if they're a couple or if they're just close friends or what the relationship is. I've talked about this with a lot of people that I've watched it with. The current consensus at the moment is that they are so a couple. Oh, really? (laughs) They are. Current consensus from a lot of the women that I watch this film with, they are so dating. That is so clearly there. But then at the same time, I think the point is that it is an undefined relationship. They are very intense. They are very intimate in their connections. There are sexual overtones sometimes. They're intimate. But it, it could it could manifest. It could be anything at all. And that's the point. It's Yes, it doesn't, it doesn't really have matter. a definition. Yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it isn't a definable relationship. And that's the power of it. It's not. It's kind of outside those... Those boundaries of engagements and things like that, which, you know, Gregoire tries to force Julie into, and it exists outside of that. It's not a sexual film, despite it has sexual language in it, in the cabaret and in the interactions with Gregoire, and the the cabaret outfit is quite revealing, but it's too silly to be sexy, really, isn't it? It's too daft. 
Which is kind of why it works as some kind of intimate, because it, it's more like a realistic representation yes. of what actual relationships are like. Yeah. It's just people messing, whether they're friends or partners, they're messing about, basically, and having fun with it. This idea that they're sort of making it up as they go along. But so, so when Celine arrives at Julie's house, and she does seem to have an actual injury, so not a major one, but she seems to have fallen and hurt her knee. So that seems actual. And I wonder if she's just fallen over because she's had too much white wine. Quite possibly. But she spins this story of, of having escaped from this... She was working as a nanny and she escaped from this house and now they're coming after her because of some dramatic thing that's happened. Yeah, involving passports or something, or a necklace or something like that. It's a little... Kind of an, a foreshadowing of the other drama we get later on. But the following morning, yeah. Julie says to her, what was... You were telling me about that house you escaped from. What was the address of it? And Celine says, I told you yesterday, which she didn't. And... Julie says, oh, yes, it's 7 Rue de Pomme-Nadir Street. Yeah. And she goes, and then later, when Celine wants to go and visit it, she says to Julie, what was the address of that house you went to yesterday? <laughs> the idea that, it's, yeah, stories are a bit generating. They're basically, they're creating reality somewhere, I think, or accessing it. And then she used, but she used the address, then realises afterwards it's next door to a child at home. There's a photograph of the actual house, as I say, in her in a toy box which she's got and it's huge I mean it's not like a little instamatic <laughs> thing it's, it's this massive picture. A3 picture at least A3 possibly A2 blown yeah. up photograph of the front of this house this bagpuss house in her toy box which is in her living room it's not even in the attic it's in her living room she's quite she doesn't mind having the dolls out she seems to have a player with them occasionally and she's got this chalkboard so she she replaces I think significantly she's got this big blown up picture of Gregoire I love that photo it's so funny it's so (laughs) pompous it's hilariously pompous I love it but she replaces Gregoire with the picture of the house so she slides him out from behind the chalkboard and sticks that in its place absolutely do you notice the numbers that she's writing on the chalkboard earlier on? Yes, I didn't know what the significance is. It's a magic square, it's a ritual. I'll not get into the actual, the, the sort of origins of it. It's, it's, it's like an occult ritual or a magical summoning thing. And she rubs that out as well and replaces it with a drawing of the house. So she's replaced one kind of magical summoning with another one. They sort of replace that sort of ritual magic, which is quite sort of staid and almost religious based, with their own creative and their spontaneous acts of like just literally rewriting the world so it's again it's that thing of moving away from very strict control systems into just absolute anarchy basically and messing about and that was what works they do actually use magic spells by the end they make a potion at the end they do out of clover and perfume (laughs) baby dinosaur eyes and some flash powder and a bit of incense by the look of it something like that and it turns black they put it in the goldfish bowl though yeah don't do that they really do it that's not nice I was angry right that's what that's the bit I can loosen the film yes actually don't don't mistreat the goldfish and give it a bigger bowl give it a tank it's in an actual proper old fashioned less than a foot diameter goldfish bowl and Celine who's a bit stabby and a chronic fidget tries to poke the fish with the stem of a flower as well. I, so I don't know I don't like that either no. she can stop doing that that's what we can lose in the film that's the only objection to it don't be cruel to the goldfish mm. but it's st- still not on a part nowhere close to weekend it's not weekend no, it, it's not the sledgehammer thing it's a sledgehammer isn't it weekend that's that's all you need to know everybody don't don't investigate that any closer don't don't be tempted to look into that one or watch the film possibly I think I'd like that final third best when they're just they're just sitting there it's 
a bit like the bit in House, Houseu, the Japanese film, when, the, yes. when they're on the bus and one of them's recounting history, but it's as if they're watching it as well. Yeah, actually it does think about it. Yeah, that's very true. They're having these memories, but it's a bit like they're watching it on telly or in the cinema. and they're, But they're both kind of leaning forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took me, I didn't notice that on the first time I saw it and realised, because obviously, as we've said, if you've not seen, the point is they're eating these kind of magic enchanted boiled sweets that let them end, revisit their memories of the time they were in the house. And then, but when they do it, they lean forward as if they're looking at a screen or of some kind. But they're looking at us as well, I note. We are what they are watching. So it's, there's a whole like the viewer and the, that becomes the object of the, of the gaze. And at one point, one of them, I think it's Celine, gets bored. <laughs> she does. Is it Celine who gets bored? I mean, it would be. I She's think the it's fidget. Celine who gets bored. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, she's like, we've seen this part. Because we see, <laughs> like the book says, we see several bits several times. We've seen all of this. I'm getting bored of this. And another another point, one of them says, it's just, it's just padding. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> Do you know what it reminds me of? This occurred to me. A bit from, again, I'll show my immense age. 70 cinemas throughout Europe, the, the films were on loop. Oh, yes. So if you, ca- if you came in sort of 25 minutes late, as I did to a showing of Disney's One of Our Dinosaurs are miss- is Missing in um, well, at the age of about six, then you just sat through the film and watched the first 20 minutes again out of sequence, just at the added on at the end. Until it was time to go again. I think I never experienced that. Maybe my p- parents were always just very punctual. Just the one, just the ones ever. And as I say, it was one of our dinosaurs is missing. <laughs> and let me just step in and say, that's one of the Disney films they don't show very often. Why? <laughs> the answer's in the racism. Oh, really? It is horrendous, horrendously racist, horrendously racist. Oh. Peter Usenoff as a, um, oh, a sort of Fu Manchu figure. That's all you need to know. I it's, just assumed it was because it was rubbish, but... It is rubbish as well. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. A little bit of both then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when they finally go into the house towards the end, so they get this magic, they wear the baby dinosaur eye rings, which they've enchanted, which allows them to go in the house and experience it in real time and be lucid. So it does become a lucid dream. Yeah. And I like how in all the other times we've seen it, it's been bright sunshine. But when they go in and they're lucid, it's very dark and crepuscular and inside. And it's all this front lighting. Yeah. So it's like a flash, like an old Instamatic photograph where it's like the, the flash photography. So everything's lit from one side, this this sort of singular bright light. Yeah, the lighting, the, there is this sudden shift. I couldn't work out if it was to create atmosphere to build this sort of the tension and the stress or whether it's meant to suggest a stage with literal footlights. Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, that's possibly one of the things I'm less keen on because I'm so... I so like the idea of it being a lucid dream that the whole theatrical thing, you know, the audience applause and the, the knocking, it's maybe the bit I could do without. Yeah, actually. I just prefer it being... I think it's just my own preferences, but I prefer the idea of it being a lucid dream rather than becoming a, a, a stage play or a the- theatrical thing. I can't agree with you. Unless... You can feel free to interpret it as, like, you know, that they're, they're making... It's their lucid dream and they're reinterpreting now as they're messing about on stage and i suppose often in in lucid dreams you might be in a film or be in a tv show as well i'm suddenly in mash and i'm interacting with hawkeye (laughs) often in dreams you're watching something on telly yeah and getting really in so into what's happening on the screen that you're it's now just happening to you and you've forgotten you were watching it on telly or that sort of thing and that's a common experience dreams i mean i just this is purely just an excuse for me to say i once dreamed myself into an episode of the goodies just putting that out there oh wow that was especially i i have had that experience i was the fourth goodie for for, for one <laughs> night of dreaming only <laughs> i was in the monkeys 
Were you? Yeah. That I suit. Did. That would work. That suits you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I wanted to be Peter, obviously, because I look the most like Peter, but I, I think I was Davy. <laughs> Davy Jones. It's nothing to be sniffed at being Davy Jones for a night. Absolutely. No, no I mean, any of the monkeys is all right. But yeah, I, I love how the atmosphere changes. So when they're in this lucid dream, it's not how they remember it or how they're seeing it when they suck the sweets and having the flashback. It's now this dark and gloomy place. The ghosts now have grey faces. Oh, they get greyer and greyer as the film goes yes. on from this point. They look more and more sort of haunted and ill and ghostly, basically. And did you notice that now Camille bleeds blue? Yes, I did. It's bright blue blood rather than the red blood when it's... Yes, that's, that's one of the details I loudly point out to people, which is probably a reason people don't want to watch the film with me. Look, <laughs> she's bleeding blue now, her blood's gone blue. Yeah. they've got ghosts, right. but they haven't got red blood in their veins anymore. And I think one of the re- the elements that I find really evocative and really nice is, and again, it's like being in a lucid dream or being inside your... It, it's like being inside your favourite film, which essentially it is in a way, even though it's yeah. not necessarily their favourite film, because Silly seems a bit bored with it. But the bit where they see Camille or whichever, I think it is Sophie, one of them's looking through the box of clothes and there's a little kitten. But we've not seen that scene before. Yeah. That's not part of the main story. That's that's an extra. So it's like going inside your favourite film and looking in a different room that's not normally shown. And there's one of the characters doing something new. And it's like, ah, so you can actually explore this film in real time. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw that. It was like, because you've watched the other scenes so many times by this point, sort of three or four times when you see a new bit there's this whole like whoa and you see everything from a different perspective and then of course the central mystery that's taking place gets solved as they observe everything yeah and they operate outside of the the narrative structure and they see what's going on off stage or off screen in fact it'd be like going into star wars which is probably the film over the years i've seen the most times and just sort of exploring a different room in the millennium falcon and going oh, what's in here and his <laughs> His, where's Han Solo? Follow Han Solo. Oh, he's just going to. He's just off to the bathroom. Or that kind of thing. Yeah, just <laughs> seeing the characters outside of the narrative, just interacting with the environment. It's, it's a huge obsession of mine. What happens to characters outside of, when they're off screen? Life is going on off screen. There's a whole world, a whole internal world that's taking place, and I love that idea. It's. It's it's what it's an idea that's haunted my own dreams, especially when I was a child. Like that, what's happening off screen, just as Celine and Julie can explore and look around. Like, oh, this is what's this is what's in the, this flight of staircase, you know, Han Solo's bathroom, as we can call it from now on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here we are. Yes, this is what I wrote. And the mere sight of a fish gives me amnesia. So it doesn't even make her sick. It, it gives her amnesia when she sees a fish. <laughs> Imagine, if I had fish for tea, can you imagine? Oh, God, I can't remember a thing. But uh, amnesia references, I don't know. That is, is this just something they just make? Is this just something they made up because she needs a reason not to go to the seaside with him because he offers the sake of the sea, doesn't he? And I think they're probably having fun with the... They're just messing about. Do you notice what happens in that scene, though? I, I, it's about five or six viewings before I spotted it. Is that Bar- Barbette Schroeder's character gives Miss Angel, he gives her a boiled sweet and that's the boiled sweet she's sucking when the dream breaks and they get kicked out of the house. Oh, of course, I did. It was only this time that I noticed that there was boiled sweets in the story, but I didn't notice that that was the one that he gave her. Yeah, he gives her one of the oh. sweets, which is obviously why they, when they get ejected, they've, they've got a boiled sweet in their mouth each, which is, it's, and it's the bit of the dream that survives each time, hence why they can use it to enchant themselves in. And I, I think there is that, thing that everyone's had at some point in their life where you wish you could bring something out of a dream oh gosh yeah you you win a million pounds in the lottery and you wish you could wake up and still have the money or 
anything like that. And, but in this, they do. They have the sweet and the red handprint from uh, Camille. Camille at one point injures her palm on a broken yeah. glass. Something so dramatic happens that a glass breaks in her hand and she swoons. She has to be tended to by Nurse Angèle, played by Celine or Julie, depending on which time around we see it. So when they come out of the dream, with her her bloody handprint is on her back, but it's more like a a stain or a birthmark almost isn't it it's not it's not a bloody handprint it's like an actual shape of a human hand yeah and as we mentioned earlier it's the same one that celine creates in the library with her own by painting around her own hand it's very very similar just as julie's doing the thumbprints with red ink it's got lots of callbacks it really has a lot of call forwards it's just this idea you it's about improvisation at the end of the day, as, I, as, I've, as I've said a lot. It's, it, it's about taking the ideas of the world around you, but rather than simply just, rather than simply generating you know, like a movie or a, a performance piece, they generate an entire universe and inhabit it, which is really cool. The bit where they create the magic potion. It's essentially a cocktail evening, because they both get quite tipsy off of this potion. They do, yeah. They get, they get drunk on that, don't they? They get yeah, drunk they, and they, they end they, up in their dressing gowns. Yeah, and they do. They dance and mess about, and also <laughs> it looks really good fun. It is. They've written down the dialogue that they can remember from the melodrama in the house, and they're mocking it. They're saying it in silly voices. Yes, they do. So even they're not taking it seriously. As I say, it begins as like an intensely serious melodrama and tragedy, and then it just shifts into pantomime by the end of it, and beyond pantomime into absolute just just nonsense. But the ghosts never change. They, the ghost they're still always change. doing the same things. And obviously the, the ghosts put in one final appearance, don't they? Wensley and Julie go boating. The ghosts make another appearance there, but they're, just, they're in a boat. <laughs> Which is one of my favourite images in cinema. It's beautiful. In fact, we'll get to this, actually, uh, on one of my questions. Uh, yeah, I also, uh, also wanted to say about when they're in the, the lucid dream, when they're, in the, they're lucidly inside the melodrama. I, I like how giggly they get so and i think other other directors or other performers might have played it quite serious but they get really giggly and they're trying to remember what to do and they're trying to remember their role and what their dialogue is within this drama playing miss angele the nurse and they're trying to remember and they get really giggly <laughs> and they get it wrong sometimes they, they do their, their words in the wrong order <laughs> yes up. it's great as I alluded to earlier on, the actually quite scary moment when one of the dinosaur rings falls off. Mm. Uh, I think it's Julie's finger, isn't it? And she reverts into Miss Angèle straight away. Yes. And it's a, it's a sudden switch. It's really, really beautifully done. And she just cuts back into like, ah, no, wait, wait, the blood ties must be renewed or whatever it is. And yeah, that's, a, that's just a genuine like, whoa, kind of shocking moment. And also the moment when the little girl... So there's four ghosts. There's the man, the handsome man, Barbette Schroeder, the two women and this little girl who I think... Who is she? Is she somebody's daughter? Is she Camille's She's, daughter? She's uh, Barbette Schroeder's character's daughter and the, um, her mother died some time ago. Made her, made her husband swear a vow that he would never love again because she had a traumatic upbringing. And everyone wants to seduce him basically because apparently he's hot. Right. Really wealthy, so I wanted to track you to the incredibly wealthy ghost, Barbara Schroeder. Um, yeah, yeah, so they they almost like Blake Seven with the bracelets. They take an extra dinosaur ring in with them. Oh gosh, slip it the on the little bl- girl's. <laughs> you just want Blake Seven references, Julie. <laughs> this is why I come on this show. <laughs> this is what I'm here for. 
But they, yeah, they bring one in for the little girl and they slip it on her finger and she she immediately becomes lucid as well and looks around at these these two women, uh, which is with delight. Yeah, absolutely delight. And she does seem to recognise them as well, don't you? Clearly, she sort of recognises them. It's my two new mothers. Which, which is what happens. We've now spoiled the entire film. <laughs> I mean, but watch not, it anyway. It's fine. It's not, re- it's not really important. It's what? not really. It's 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 not a it's not a kind of narrative. It's not an unfolding narrative at all. It's you are just guiding through it and experiencing all these things. But yeah, and then suddenly she's their she's their daughter in modern day Paris, effectively. Also, what I like about the um, just hopping back again very briefly to the when they're in the house for the final time and it's all lucid is is when it's now dark it's all very very silly but actually the 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 sound effect is there's a storm there's whistling sinister whistling wind like it's a a proper haunted house and thunder rumbling outside and this really chilly eerie whistly wind but they're still larking about but i like that as well i had only noticed it this time around with the sort of tropes of the ghost story quite effectively and you could you can see another director making actually a really creepy film out of this but the reverse just not interested no. that that's the point those this stuff's worn out it's and it comes out of that era in french cinema when it was rejecting a lot of the worn out ideas of the past and just sort of saying like no that's that was melodramatic spooky old haunted house gothic stuff let's move past that which is a shame, because I, you know me, I love my melodramatic haunted house gothic stuff, but I can also see the point in these films. Yes, properly. It's something a bit different, yeah. This is shaking everything up and cutting away all the nonsense. <laughs> yeah, so they go then at the very end, even though they're lucid and they're wearing these rings, they actually snap back out of it, back in their apartment, sitting on their... It's They're sitting on the toy box, aren't they? The toy chest. Yeah. This is where they yeah. watch the, supposedly watch this film from, so they've gone back to the, the sweets in their mouths, and they go, whoa! Um... And they look at each other. Then they hear a voice in the other room, and they have brought something else out from the from the dream. Actually, brought something from the moon. The line they use is, "It doesn't hurt to fall off the moon," oh. which I was tempted to get on a ta- as a tattoo for That's a while. That's very poetic, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah, I like that one. And then the line, "What shall we play now?" Yes. What What shall we play now? How much of this has been a game, and who actually are these people? Even is it literally a game, or is this some kind of like are they? And this sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but to say, like, are they, like, some kind of supernatural entities doing this? Because that's something Rivette does in later films. The idea of, like, supernatural entities in Paris, in contemporary Paris, generating, manipulating reality, just playing games with human lives. It's touched upon in Out One, and it's the main theme in uh, Duel, which is sort of like a film or two down the line from Celine and Julie. So it's not it's not outside the realms of possibility that that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, Duel is literally about supernatural beings playing games with reality and um, sort of messing people's lives up for fun. It's quite a malevolent one in that particular case. But So maybe they're a pre-existing family. So maybe the three of them 
are an actual family and they just they have this these games with reality where they put themselves into this new story and then it starts again yeah with the roles of Celine and Julie reversed but maybe it will be something entirely even though it starts it usually started like this that doesn't necessarily mean it always then goes takes the same route yeah so it always has the same or usually has the same beginning but maybe every time something completely different happens yeah it's it's almost it's the game is they have to find each other almost i think it's like a high, almost like a hide and seek kind of thing again they have to find the three of them have to find each other in some scenario i always that's my head canon for it and a later film uh, pont de nord a rivets is about again a gigantic game that runs secretly throughout the whole of paris and it, it consumes lives and whatever and it, it's, it's kind of apparently has again supernatural or science fictional overtones to it so you can see those ideas being worked through again to me that that's my head canon this is weird reality game that they play where they slip through these scenarios they've created and see can they can they find each other within the world they've built? I like that idea. Maybe they're immortals who are just entertaining themselves by doing these little weird little yeah. adventures. Well, in Duel, uh, Juliette Berto plays um, the Queen of the Moon, the Celine reference again there. So, ah. yeah, just maybe, maybe, maybe. I like reading to it into things. That's my hobby. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, I think that we said before, it's one of those films where you just can read anything you want into it, and it's neither wrong nor right. It is possibly the ultimate film for what you bring to it, you get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Which is why spoilers genuinely don't matter, despite everything we've said about it, because you you bring your own world to it, and you you sink into that reality yourself, and you generate your own storyline. I also tend to think with spoilers in film podcasts, anyone who's listened to this just because they find us charming rather than the fact that they've seen the film. <laughs> By the time they come to see the film, they'll, they'll not remember the details anyway. They won't remember that. Or people who find it... There's got to be the two or three people who find me charming out there, yeah. People who are listening that's, out of a sense of loyalty. <laughs> dragging of themselves to these podcasts about films they've <laughs> never seen. You can hear them sighing right now. <laughs> we can hear you sighing. You can I, can, I, I don't you dare skip ahead. <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> so I'll go back to my questions. Do you have a favourite scene? Favourite sequence, I would say. I, I Clearly, as you may have got by this time, I love the whole thing completely and absolutely. I would suggest my two favourite... I can't I can't boil it down to less than three. The, the kamikaze sequence in the club. Yes. And the... Um, Gregoire sequence, those two identity swap scenes are amazing. But my actual favourite, full the, the bit that gets me every single time is that opening sequence, the chase across Paris as the sun starts to set, which looks gorgeous, which shows off a city in a way that you just don't normally see Paris represented. And it's so immediately odd, mysterious, alluring. The moment where, and the, I can boil it down to one particular moment, when... Julie is sort of like sneaking after Celine jokingly and then Celine turns around and they make eye contact and they stare at each other and then they resume like what they were doing this weird stalking game that's so intense and it's so ambiguous and open interpretation and it's absolutely beautifully shot and it just looks amazing and I love it I think my favorite I mean it depends what you describe as a scene but the whole the whole final sequence of the oh God, the, yeah. the lucid dream in the house is just one of my favourite things ever. There's so much joy in there. Yeah, so yeah. much to take away from it. Uh, so this is a tricky one. Do you have a favourite moment? Ah, I mean, you maybe just said it. That, that, <laughs> um, yeah, that particular moment, the moment yeah. when they make eye contact, just about sort of six or seven minutes in or so. 
it's just it's a shivers down the spine moment because you don't we are never privy to what that eye contact means we're not allowed to know that but it's it clearly means something huge whatever it is yeah do they already know each other is that the moment they decide they really want to know each other yeah what's never sure we're never gonna know it doesn't matter as well my favorite moment is right towards the very end where they're on the boat and they're having this lovely day out and this bright summer sunshine and the three of them are boating along this beautiful river and then they all suddenly see something strange you tell from their expression <laughs> they seem something yeah. strange and then the second but if you've come this far i'm going to say what it is yeah do it the uh the three ghosts drift past in the opposite direction on another boat they're sitting perfectly still in these very stylized poses very elegant formalized poses i think the male, I forget the name of the guy, the handsome man. I think his head follows them. I think he's watching them, but otherwise they're utterly still. But he just, his head turns as they pass. And then they just carry on towards these beautiful weeping willows and this bright sunny day. So the ghosts are out in full, so they're not, they're no longer confined to the house. They're out in bright, direct sunshine, but they're still there. And all three of them can see them. Are they menacing or not? I don't, they seem to be aware of Celine, Julie and the little girl now as well. I don't know if it's a menace, but then you, you get that quick cut back to the, the Celine and Julie's boat, and they're looking. They're looking really defiant, and you would not mess with these two in that moment. <laughs> That's the point. They are not getting their hands on that girl again. Is it like the end of Martha Marcy May Mar- May Marlene? <laughs> Quite possibly. Was it more benign than that? <laughs> I, I like to think of it more benign than that. I think it does take it in a benign way, actually. Yeah. And then, of course, I, and, and another favourite moment right at the end, suddenly we are back and uh, someone once described it as now it's Julie and Celine go boating. Yes. The new film begins. <laughs> Which is noise. I want to watch the new film. I want to follow it. I want to see what yes. happens next. It I should just be a, go. a series of sequels that, all, that mostly start like this. I would, I would, you know full well I would pay for that. Mm. I would be there every night <laughs> watching them. And I think I know your answer to who wins your award for Outstanding Person in Front of the Camera. Ah, I I am now on on national international podcast television, um, confessing to, to my deep and just my childhood crush on Juliette Berto, and she's still just this absolutely. And it's it's it is <laughs> this isn't a crush thing anymore. It's just I look at her work and her body of work and her skills and the things she did and she achieved, and she's absolutely inspirational. And it infuriates me that she's so unknown still mm, because absolutely. this is someone who should be completely fated and, and legendary and all these kind of aspects and that her work should be studied because it the bits i can source of it were absolutely great that really fantastic and really unusual and she's such a good performer as well in everything she ever appeared in well i'm going to balance you out and say dominique Liburier of course you are ginger icon you <laughs> she is they're all every they're both they're both deeply, deeply, deeply cool. It's just, and that interaction is, it's magnificent, isn't it? How many films have such an overtly ginger protagonist? Because she's, she's the protagonist. <laughs> because it's, even though it's Celine and Julie go boating, it's Julie is the main character, I think, and Celine. Yes. Celine is co-protagonist, but it's more focused on Julie as being the main character who meets Celine rather than the other way around. So it's yeah. 
Rivette said that as well. He said it's it's Julie's story. That's that's all he would ever say about it. It's Julie's story. But we've so. got a really really ginger protagonist, which doesn't happen in cinema very often. It doesn't, does it? And that's that is a huge that is a huge shame. And she is just and they, they use they use the maison scene that's generated by the by a hair colour to generate this intense sort of fiery personality that comes. She's she's not fiery at the start, but it it manifests that sort of kind of stereotype, I guess. Particularly in the the Andy Kaufman esque. Kamikaze nightclub scene. <laughs> oh, the kamikaze sequence. Yeah, that's it's it's so good. It's so good. Please, please, everyone, go and watch it. <laughs> so, before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything I'd like to plug? Um, at some point in the well, this is a bit of a vague plug. At some point in the near future, my own little podcast show, The Violet Ghost Train, will be returning after an extensive spring and summer hiatus. I was a bit busy. And which is all manner of darkness, spookiness, ghosty things, folklore, creepy television, and me just talking about stuff that I find interesting generally, because it's my show and I can do what I want. If you've not listened to it, track down The Violet Ghost Train, which is on all fine um, podcasting hosts. It's definitely on Spotify. Have a listen to me, and new episodes will be coming up very, very soon. If... uh people wish to do so and if you wish to reveal such things where can people get in touch people can get that's a very good point which i completely forgot you might want to get in touch i am on twitter at crow violets i'm at crow violets in there or you can get in touch with me uh, <laughs> i'm doing what you do on retro tube i'm forgetting a bit. yeah go on twitter <laughs> that's the best thing to do it crow violets on twitter find that one you know you can find me as or odds violet on instagram you can look for me on there I will be on there as Crow Violets or Odds Violet you can find me and also if you are in I'm going to be super super local specific plug if you're in the Sheffield area my performance night Queen of Swords is on the 5th of November 2022 for the next one at the time of writing just putting that out there if you're in Sheffield look us up on on Facebook to find that well, thank you, Ords Violet, and thank, thank you, you so much. You're, well, yeah, you're welcome. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I always, always love to come along to these. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. Yeah, and thank you, listeners, for all the sterling listening work you've done this episode. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find my sibling show, RetroTube Archive Television Podcast, on Twitter at retro underscore tube, where my co-host Heather also lives. And if you want to send actual email communication, the address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. And I will at some point set up a dedicated account for this podcast, but not today. <laughs> not today. No. Today's but the following day. morning... <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back soon with another guest and another film. But until then, cheerio! Goodbye, everyone. Thank you.